Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Okay, so the Oliver... The Snowden trailer came out. Yeah, like this Oliver Stone movie about Snowden has come out. Yeah. Um, From the director who brought you JFK in that movie about you, Rich Hoppus. Kill me now. That's going to be great. So I feel like I have not watched the trailer, and I was sort of tempted not to, but then I was thinking that I should know, like, for... I was thinking we should tape me watching it for the first time, just because, like, I don't... I can't, like, fake those kinds of eye rolls. Like, they only (laughs) It'll be better than the trailer. I watched it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. It's it's all shades of awful. (laughs) Like a reaction video. Okay, it. so we'll, um, we'll tape you watching yeah. the trailer? Yeah. Although yeah. I will say, Jordan, It'll be a Joseph Gordon, yeah, oh yeah, Joseph, <laughs> like those reaction videos. Yeah. yeah. Like I, Joseph, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Edward Snowden, though, eerily spot on. I, I love this idea, so w- maybe we should have, like, a video of you watching the trailer, a video of Shane watching the trailer. No, no, or and us then watching a video it together. of me watching <laughs> a video going, of uh, right? watching the trailer. And then we'll just keep going. <laughs> um, yeah, the trailer is so bad. I actually don't think I've ever enjoyed an Oliver Stone movie. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Cyber Bombs edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Cyber Bombs. I want Cyber Bombs. I feel like I've launched many of them. Okay. You sound so chipper about it. Oh, I think it's great. Because if, bom- if we have Cyber Bombs, then we can have John McCain singing... Cyber bomb, cyber bomb, bomb bomb. Around. Oh yeah! I cyber want bomb cyber bomb. I want a cyber gun to shoot cyber bullets I at the cloud. <laughs> exactly, and I'm going to start with the people who misuse she the word cyber bomb. <laughs> Can we just prefix cyber? You know, but it's, it, it can be. I'm, I, I, you know, I, I, I have some affinity for it. You know, as you know, but yes, it's terribly misused. I think um, we should we should only use cyber uh, to refer to. Uh, Things that actually happen in the cloud and internet space, rather than anything electronic. Good luck with that. But then. the yeah. only thing more obnoxious than the like pervasive use of the cyber prefix is the people who then correct you, like, "Well, actually, that's digital. Like, that's just <laughs> yeah. that's you know, right?" Cyber so it's a whole, yeah, yeah, it's true. And it's especially egregious when it's used by people who should know better. Mm-hmm. Cyber bombs, of course, was used like ten days ago or so by Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work. Not good. Not good. Uh, c- prompting one of his colleagues to say it made them quote cringe. <laughs> <laughs> cyber, cyber cringe. Is, is there an emoticon for cringe? I think there is one now. It's a Facebook-like option. Yeah, there yeah. should be. There needs to be one. Since so much on Facebook is cringe-worthy. It yeah. is cringe-worthy. Uh, I'm here in our DC studio with my good friend Susan Hennessy. Hello, Susan. Hi, Shane. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Tamara Kaufman with us. Hello, Tamara. Hey, Shane. And Ben with us. Hello, Ben. Yo. Uh, this week on the show, cyber bombs. They're a fallen. The U.S. is ramping up cyber operations against ISIS. Another standoff over the FBI's access to a locked iPhone ends, but are more fights around the corner. And the mystery of the curious habeas cases popping up at Guantanamo. 
Oh, that is. Plus our object lessons. Let's let's get let's get it right into cyber bombs. So that of course was Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work saying that the U.S. is dropping quote unquote cyber bombs on ISIS. Uh, uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Ash Carter, his boss, had talked about cyber operations against ISIS. The president has talked about it. Uh, we did a report on this in the Daily Beast. This little paper called the New York Times did a story like a week later. Oh, yeah. Hysterical mm-hmm. newspaper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks and it sounded so familiar when I read it's it. Their cyber war correspondent, oh, yeah. David Sanger, who must read the Daily Beast a lot. <laughs> um, <clears throat> anyway, so the gist of this is that yes, we are launching cyber operations against ISIS, primarily aimed at uh, their command and control, uh, at disrupting their communications. Who would like to jump in? on whether this new way of warfare is really going to reshape and dramatically alter the battlefield, or does this just look like us like playing with Twitter accounts? And, yeah. uh, well, no, it seems to me it's, it's definitely a step beyond playing with Twitter accounts. I mean, there is still that, that countering violent extremism communication right. strategy that the U.S. government continues to struggle with, mostly because... Shockingly enough, young people vulnerable to extremist recruitment don't pay much attention to what governments have to tell them on social media. Um, but what was interesting to me at reading this David Sanger story, there were a couple things that jumped out. One was a little paragraph that said, um, there's an effort underway to imitate uh, officials in militant networks mm-hmm and redirect militants on the battlefield to areas more vulnerable to attack. Yep. In other words, to try and shift ISIS's infantry by sending them fake messages. Mm-hmm. So that seemed like a really, really interesting kind of deception strategy with real world, not merely cyber implications. Right. Kinetic outcomes, as they would say in the military. Don't, don't you think this is really the answer to your question? Since, since everybody, every time people talk about this, they always have to quote, quote Clausewitz, right? Politics is the continuation, a war is the continuation of politics by other means. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, cyber war is the continuation of war by other means. Well, and right? it's not and you're, even you're, you're, to- that totally other means because the outcomes are the war on the ground. Well, but the, the outcomes may or may not be the war on the, uh, on, on the ground, right? If you can, if you can achieve military strategic objectives, like say disabling a piece of weaponry, or a, 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 an attack on you by means other than blowing it up, uh, see Stuxnet, <coughs> for example, um, you know, you can do that. On the other hand, um, the just as the question is uh, when you, you know, is a military means an effective way of continuing politics, right? I think you always have to ask the question, is this going to be an effective way of achieving your military objectives, or is it going to be a kind of cool gadget that works for a moment until somebody figures out what you're doing and right. doesn't but go I mean, that just direction? freaks the enemy out for a little while. Right. Right, but I'm, always, I'm sort of surprised by how... Um, like, people are sort of addressed, acting as though this is like an incredibly novel new thing. Right. I mean, we've used cyber operations in, in um, conjunction with kinetic operations. And we did exactly Back to the Iraq, Iraq War. Exactly. Yeah, like, like, d- disrupting communications, rerouting this. Whole thing. So it's not Taking as sort out. of, as a military tactic, it's not really new, which is why I'm sort of, um, there's, it seems like there's a little bit of focus on, oh, we're using it on ISIS. That's somehow different. I mean, that's not really a sort of novel legal question from having military operations against, um, you know, ISIS and, uh, you know, sort of other challenges of the AUMF. 
well, that have always and, existed. And, and, and moreover, you know, when, when you say we've used cyber operations dating back to um, uh, the Iraq War, uh, those were in turn uh, continuations of uh, information operations that we've conducted as long as there have been electronic communications. Sure. But I will say, in this realm, it does seem like we're seeing. I mean, the cyber bombs sort of thing got it was sort of got laughed at quite a yeah. bit. But I actually am. I find it a little bit troubling um, that work would use such imprecise language because I think it doesn't quite bring. Um, the difficulties of some of the legal questions here of like, right, cyber bombs. I, I think that caused at least some group of people to be like, well, what does that mean, right? A kinetic outcome, right? Yeah. Sort of people who are taking it seriously. Um, and, and for the general public, I, I think it's sort of, um, you know, the question of uh, these really difficult questions about what's a civilian object? How do the laws of armed conflict apply in this realm? It's like sort of these offhanded, almost um, macho yeah. posturing statements. It's kind of like when Brett McGurk tweets that U.S. air operations crushed yes. ISIS yes. in a in a location which he does on a regular like basis. a high five. If I can link this to a conversation we had about cyber warfare when we were talking about the U.S. and China a few months ago, right. and I raised at that time the possibility of whether the Obama administration is trying to advance norm development around cyber warfare with a norm of you know, no offensive operations, defensive only, or something like that. I, that was my hypothesis. But this is all offensive operations. Of course, it's against a non-state actor, but I, I think it does raise the question, how does this relate to any effort at developing norms around cyber warfare? And I think that's, I think that's exactly what this is about. I mean, aside from the fact that it's about using these techniques against ISIS because we think that they'll, they'll be helpful, which they very well may be, I think the fact that, <clears throat> I mean, to your point about the novelty of it, Susan, the novelty in this case was that so many officials, including the president, openly acknowledged that we're doing it, which they've never done before, and they just certainly didn't do in Iraq. And to your point, Tamara, I think it's like we want to demonstrate that this is going to be a feature of battle now, and that maybe it's like it shouldn't be that novel, and that we should get used to it because we're going to keep doing it. And it sort of, cre I think it does create the expectation that we would do it again, and certainly asserts that we think that it's, it's legal, right? The only well, and if it's going to be a feature of warfare, then it's very much in the interest of the United States to say, and we're better better at it than everybody else, and exactly. we're going to use it. Yeah, but, and, it was, and which is what they've been trying to do in this, too, yeah, in this discussion. But I also think that the behavior as we've described it, uh, at least as David Sanger has described it, is by no means inconsistent with the norms that we purport to be wanting to develop. As in, they're not uh, attacking, you know, civilian infrastructure, uh, they're not, you know, critical infrastructure in peacetime, right? right. They're, they're attacking military uh, targets uh, in order to make them more vulnerable to conventional military strikes, and I don't think we would really have a problem with uh, the People's Liberation Army doing that. We're not stealing ISIS's voluminous trade secrets and giving them to our <laughs> com companies, right? We're, we're not really doing any of the things that we're complaining about other countries doing. 
No, I, mean, I think that I think it is interesting, but um, maybe we will be answering some of the outstanding normative or legal questions just by example, right? So we're going to do what makes sense for us to do, and then that will sort of um, a normal develop just over time based on action. I, I do think it sort of um, calls into question whether or not there really is a long-term animating strategy behind all of this. Um, we will find out, I guess. Yeah. In the meantime, uh, if you're ISIS... Watch out! Watch out! And when you get that text message that says, like, hey, meet me on the corner in ten minutes. Make sure there are no big suspicious. trees around. Exactly. <laughs> which corner again was that? Hmm. In which city did you meet your significant other? ISIS is going to have to start developing security questions for their text messages. <laughs> the name of your childhood pet. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the yes. Exactly. Kittens. Mittens. Uh, okay, another round in the standoff between FBI and Apple. It's getting boring. Yeah, it's, it's get- getting boring. <laughs> okay. I mean, God. I'm so let down. Okay, because I have been telling everyone for weeks, pay attention to the case in the Eastern District of New York. It's maybe even more important than the case in San Bernardino for a whole host of reasons. And then... Last week on a Friday, the FBI comes out and says, oh, just kidding. News uh, dump. Somebody <laughs> gave us the passcode. Okay, so here's the, the, the thing. The defendant in the case gave them the passcode, which I guess he said he'd forgotten for a while, but apparently the FBI maybe had never asked him for it? So so here's the thing that, like, I, um, look, there's been a lot of criticism in the FBI, and we can talk about how they're, like, the sort of messaging or strategic wonders that's sort of occurring right now. But I in terms of kind PR. of the, the very specific, like, oh, um, you know, the Department of Justice just knew they were going going to lose, and therefore, one, this is um, certainly the strongest case the Department of Justice currently has outstanding. They certainly believe that they're going to prevail on appeal. Um, They're unlikely to see more friendly facts anytime in sort of the near future. So the idea that they strategically didn't want to have, um, uh, you know, a district court judge weigh in on this seems unlikely. The second is this question of, like, that the the Department of Justice has um, discretion here, right? Um, They said something to a judge. They said that this case is not mooted because we continue to need access to a phone um, because the warrant uh, allows us to um, to search for known and associates. And this is a defendant who had already pled guilty to being pled a guilty, dealer. Pled guilty, but, but said that he phone. forgotten the phone. Right. Um, once that individual gives them the password and the Department of Justice no longer has a need to access the phone, there is, there's not like a set of facts on which they could just like wait to tell the judge. You have to tell the judge immediately. Oh, no, you have course. no choice And they here. did. But like, there's just the question of like, seriously, didn't you ask the guy before for the freaking passcode? Right. Okay, but, so, but, but, right. but, but, but here's the thing is, it's like, it's really inconvenient for everybody that criminals are shifty characters and behave like shifty characters and they'll tell you they've forgotten their password until it's suddenly in their interest for some reason. Are you believing a self-confessed meth dealer? Uh, I'm sorry? (laughs) Are you believing a self-confessed meth dealer? He forgot and then he remembered. He slept on it for a few nights. Or like a year and a half. I'm I'm saying it shouldn't really surprise anybody that the FBI may be able to persuade somebody this year not to, you know, right. to and get how many times are they obligated they to go back? Year. They couldn't get it the first time. He said they didn't remember it. The, the defendant said he didn't remember it. Like, are they supposed to call him on a weekly basis? Sort of like continue okay. to touch your brain? You know, we've, we've had all kinds of. On this, though, I feel like there's an underlying vulnerability here for the Justice Department. Like, as you said, Susan, they had a great set of facts here. They would have loved to keep this case and get that ruling, but they couldn't. Relying on. The, on these individual cases to get them where they want to be in policy terms is a very, very risky bet. 
And well, what they want, you know, is legislation. What the White House is not supporting them on is getting legislation. So I, this is a hole in the law that ain't going to get filled. And and so, you know, however these cases work out, it's going to be a crapshoot. Right. So I do think what we're seeing in sort of um, the FBI, look, they certainly are stumbling on public messaging, um, partly for reasons that may be their own fault, partly for reasons that they have no control over. But kind of the public narrative is getting out of control, as evidenced by this um, sort of I thought sort of bizarre Wall Street Journal, um, the encryption farce op-ed um, that sort of called out the FBI for hypocrisy without also noting Apple's own hypocrisy and sort of the identical circumstances. I thought it was sort of, um, it failed to understand that, um, one, the Department of Justice is not um, capable of setting the strategy for the government on this. And what we're seeing whenever we see all these different cases popping up and, and different solutions and yes, and they push it and then they have to pull back is really a lack of any top-down decisions being made, right? There are a number of sort of policy choices that the U.S. government um, has to decide. And one of those policy choices are either, um, for example, we are going to voluntarily pursue um, buying tools on the commercial market or we are going to obtain a legal, we are going to try and obtain um, a legal decision um, that says we are not obligated to do so under the law, right? So, so one of the strategic decisions is deciding which, which questions you absolutely have to get answered. And if you don't have to have those questions answered, you can sort of as a prudential matter decide to pursue other things. You know, vulnerabilities, equities, all this stuff. I, there's, there's. So who's not doing their job here, Susan? I, I think any, I think people are being way too hard on the process. You know, there's a policy process that isn't going anywhere because nobody has the uh, nobody has the political coalition to move a piece of legislation that represents their point of view. And then along the way, in the face of that stasis and standoff, you have individual investigations where the FBI has to uh, figure out what it can and can't get. And the Justice Department represents it in court. And sometimes along the way in, in, you get uh, resolutions of the individual cases. And people should stop thinking that every single one of these cases is an effort to press a reset button on the policy process. So you're saying, Ben, relax, it'll all work itself out. And Susan, you're saying that at the top of the executive branch, there there's no policy decision-making on this issue. It's well, drift. I didn't mean to say that it will all work itself out. I'm just saying that there's no basic conflict between the the lack of an aggregate prospective policy on the part of the administration and a bureau and a justice department representing it that has to deal with individual cases as they come right, up. But in, and maybe those will be precedential and maybe they won't. Right, yeah. but in terms of sort of messaging it to the public, I do think that there has to be a decision of either we're just going to sort of let this evolve organically and we might look foolish in some cases and we're going to kind of throw up our hands and say, hey, we're just trying to figure this out. We're going to sort of do it piecemeal and, and if you legislature decide to act, then then fine. Versus sort of like we're going to take our case to the public. Um, and it does seem like like there's been mixed signals, right? So you have them declining to endorse legislation. You have Obama's speech at South by Southwest. Sort of, it, it does seem like there's genuine conflict and that, you know, we are seeing at least somewhat the manifestation of just real uncertainty. I think another sign, too, of the mess that this kind of is all created. And I, I'm, I mean, I'm with Ben, too, I think, on this. Like, this is maybe the FBI just caught a couple of bad breaks here and they would have loved to get a decision, but they Good went with the 
Well, okay, good. Brick's exactly got what they wanted. Okay, fine. But this whole question then of the vulnerability in the San Bernardino case that the FBI found, which I guess now we've confirmed that it costs more than a million dollars to purchase it. Uh, the FBI, Dustin Volz uh, from Reuters, pointed this out on Twitter this afternoon, is now saying that they can't submit it to the vulnerabilities equities process because they didn't buy the rights Right, because they the don't exploit. have the uh, they don't have the underlying they don't have proprietary the underlying knowledge. Part of it. So to me, it's just, I mean, this, I How guess this is that of cost. I wondered. I said, who the hell negotiated that deal, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe the person said, we won't sell it to you if you're even thinking about submitting <laughs> it to this I mean, process. It's really valuable to the company. <clears throat> it's why, really why, valuable. Why would they want to give it up? But this one thing I think this that's been really interesting and maybe unintentional about these whole series of cases is they have actually shined a lot of lights into various aspects of law enforcement procedure how the Bureau is going about getting this, people's understanding of how this technology actually works, um, the marketplace for vulnerabilities, what policy issues are in place to address those or not. I mean, it, it's kind of been a, a fascinating, unintentional public education campaign, <laughs> while it's all also caused the debate, even if the FBI sometimes, I think, sort of looks a little but do you feel like the do you feel like the conversation is getting better? I don't feel like it's getting sort of more focused on the real issues, or we're no, like it's, it's just getting more kind dug of, in and more silly. I feel like the quality of the conversation, maybe in certain like maybe on social media, not so much. But I feel like I know and understand a hell of a lot more about what's at stake for both parties than I did. Both parties being the tech industry and law enforcement than I did before this began. But, but, but Shane, you're you're a journalist. You do you know research and reporting and stuff. You learn things. So boring. You I click on the headline. I also think that the process of watching the bureau go through a bunch of these cases is really edifying. That you know you have the San Bernardino case <coughs> where they buy uh, a, they sort of buy a solution for a yep. million dollars. Uh, you have the um, a New York case where, you know, it's really turned, seems to be a matter of persuasion of a previously pled out defendant. Um, you have, um, you know, these other cases that Comey keeps talking about, which, uh, you know, they're kind of stumped on. And I think the, the, the range of possibility is really interesting to watch and maybe informs a public judgment over time that this is not a burden we want to relieve them of or that this is a burden that we need to relieve them of. Uh, but I, I think it should be possible for the public to hold two ideas and for the, or for the FBI to hold two ideas in its head at the same time. Nah. One, that, <laughs> one that there's a policy problem in the aggregate that we've got to do something about. And number two, that in this particular case, we're going to resolve it in the fashion that advances our interest in this particular case. I just don't see what's conflicting or, or difficult about that. Chances that they're going to uh, make public or, I guess, unseal some of these other dozen or so cases that they're fighting? You know, I think it will be, it will depend on, on sort of the legal needs of the case. I think at this point, um, I have absolutely no sense that DOJ or FBI are, um, using these cases with any kind of strategic goal in mind. I think they're really kind of focused on each individual case and, and if the message to the public gets sort of screwed up or they look silly or whatever it is, they're, they don't appear to be concerned with that. So I, but I think are these cases, like, I mean, are we talking about the right way too? Are they sealed and they could be made public or what? In other words, why don't we know why these what these twelve cases are? Well, so a number of cases. Um, so so cases that are um, 
are applications under the All Writs Act that are conducted ex parte. Um, you know, they may be sort of filed under seal so that the individual target is not aware. Um, and then as those cases sort of come to the public, that uh, come to, to trial or, or sort of are, are challenged, um, <laughs> they may eventually um, become unsealed. Um, certainly some uh, <coughs> number of individuals will plead. Yeah. Um, and actually the FBI sort of being cagey about whether or not it has the capability to unlock a phone um, also has implications on whether or not um, people who are where there are evidence of crimes on phones that the FBI has in their possession, um, it also alters their incentives of whether or not they want to plead guilty to something and rather so the than FBI wait. want you to think that they have a way to get that. Right. Phone. So I mean, there's, there's hugely complex stuff going on, um, but the important thing is I'm sick of talking about it, oh, and I no. want to fix because we just can't. Can we just move on. We can't keep doing this, thing, guys. Man. I love writing about this stuff. <laughs> I got my little case alerts all set up. I'm not going to be getting oh, any of those anymore. God. Aww. Okay. Uh, ben, there are mysterious habeas cases coming back from the dead in Guantanamo. Yeah, that's like it's like the walking dead down at Guantanamo. So a few years ago, uh, there was a giant barrage of Guantanamo habeas cases. I mean, dozens and dozens of them at the district court. And then... About 15 circuit court opinions at the D.C. Circuit. And then, to the great chagrin of me and about five other people who were like the, the Guantanamo habeas <laughs> The only people groupies. who understand <laughs> this crap. And, <laughs> and who, who loved these cases with all the pitter-pattering that our hearts could do. And we were the only people who would go to these court hearings um, it's like me and with the signs, like Mark Martin's in a heart. Uh, no, it wasn't Mark Martin. It was never at. No, it was like one person from the State Department legal's legal advisor's office, like a couple of people from DOD General Counsel's office, a couple of habeas bar nerds, oh my and God. me. And we <laughs> I'm sorry, would, you're not a habeas bar nerd. Oh, I no, guess no, you're no, not no, a no, lawyer. I, That's I'm, true. I, and I would just he's you know, not a lawyer. That's um, true. I always forget. And so. Uh, it was with great excitement the other day. Oh, oh, so then all of this stuff dries up. And the reason it dries up is that a DC series of DC circuit rulings basically convinced the Guantanamo habeas bar that you're not going to get anything for your clients in the DC circuit. So all these cases that were remaining go into abeyance. Some of them are stayed by mutual consent of, of the, of the, uh, petitioner and the government. Some of them just aren't stayed, but they just, nobody just, just nobody files any motions for, you know, three years or something. Um, and the, the, the detainees all start using other processes, you know, sort of getting, getting, uh, the, the periodic review boards to clear them, relying on the fact that Obama wants them out of Guantanamo almost as much as they want to be out of Guantanamo. And so you get these, uh, these, these, uh, opportunities to, uh, remove people other than through the habeas process. And everybody's kind of relying on them. Then the other day, I notice, or I am, it is brought to my attention, shall we say, that at least two of these long dormant Guantanamo habeas cases, like a, you know, zombie, have risen from the dead and are walking again. 
And so these are cases that are saying that the United States has no right to detain these people in the first instance. Yeah, I mean, they all say that in order to be crafted as habeas cases. Um, you have to sort of allege that there's some illegal condition of confinement or that confinement itself is illegal. But a lot of them, you know, once they get into court on that basis, they kind of change the subject once there. Um, so what exactly these cases are about now is not entirely clear. Um, but in at least two cases, detainee counsel have moved for status conferences, um, you know, after the cases have just sat there for long periods of time. And so um, I am very excited about this because it means that maybe we're going to have another round, uh, you know, in the last eight months of the Obama administration, we're going to have a flurry of Guantanamo Why? habeas. But it's such a weird thing. Yeah. Wouldn't, they, wouldn't they just hit the same brick walls the other people they did before? Well, so here are uh, three hypotheses about what they're doing. One is these are individual detainees, and there's no coordinated strategy here. This is just two things that happened in two separate cases, and they're unrelated, and I'm making it up. Um, that's possibility number one. Possibility number two is that the detainee habeas council has de have decided, okay, Obama's trying to close Guantanamo. Um, that means getting our people shipped out as much as possible. Um, let's make the litigation environment as uncomfortable as possible in order to basically give a push to that process. Um, uh, you Is know, there any track record of that having worked in the past, sort of the litigation side moving the, the periodic review board side? Well, it's not the periodic review board side that it moves, but it is the case that sometimes, you know, if you have, if you have to figure out which of three detainees to move out of Guantanamo and one of them is a huge litigation pain in the neck, um, you might work on that one faster. Hmm. And so using litigation as pressure is definitely something that has been at least modestly successful in the past. Um, of course, you never really know whether it was your litigation that helped, right. but, but they, it is one of the volume knobs that they have. Um, and then the, the third possibility is that um, the movement here uh, and there's an indication of that in one of the cases is an effort to challenge the, tran the congressional transfer restrictions. Um, and, you know, Congress has slapped a whole lot of restrictions on the ability to move people out of Guantanamo. And maybe what's going on here is that the uh, detainee council are sort of working on a more systemic challenge to these transfer restrictions. But I really don't know what the explanation for it is, and I'm really curious about it because it's it's sort of come out of nowhere, and it's not clear to me what the issues that these detainees have to litigate are, particularly because one of the detainees in question is Abu Zubaydah, who is like the least likely detainee right. at Guantanamo to win a habeas case. Um, and so what's, what's this, if you're Abu Zubaydah's lawyer, why do you want his habeas case reactivated now? Right. Maybe it's just a Hail Mary. 
Usually, Maybe they're just bored. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, Obama's Somebody's leaving. Somebody's paid. He's got to do his pro bono credits let's for the year. Just, ah, that must be it. Let's do this. It's like, I don't know, just follow the habeas petition. Well, <laughs> I guess watch the spaceman. Maybe it's a love letter to Benjamin Wittes. They're like, oh. Ben Wittes, you need some uh, habeas I in just your think, life. I just think, you know, like, there's this guy, uh, he, he goes, he tweets under the name at Gitmo Watch. And uh, once... You mean there's someone on Twitter who's even more obsessed with Gitmo than you are? Yes, he's much more obsessed <laughs> with Gitmo than we are. And uh, some time ago, we were late in filing some of our uh, uh, military commission's updates from Guantanamo. And we got this plaintive tweet from <laughs> at Gitmo Watch that said, At Lawfare Blog, no posts from you this week. Have you abandoned us? <laughs> and and oh, so, so I thought maybe that's what's going on. The Gitmo, Gitmo bar. Fanboys. The Gitmo bar is saying <sighs> we want Lawfare's attention again. So and we gonna, are here to serve. We're going to make some noise. And I, I have to say, I was really excited about this development. Well, so congratulations and best wishes to Ben and his <laughs> habeas wow. petitions. Um, before we move on, by the way, to object lessons, uh, we should very quickly, Donald Trump gave a big foreign oh, policy he speech did. today. I, yeah, I have to admit, I haven't brought myself to watch the video So I'll just say, I just want to say, like, you know, from my, from my perspective, um, no questions were taken, but I also feel like he had no surprises either. It, it just, it was, it was, it was a mash. It was just a mash of all kinds of different unpredictability is good. Right, the, the unpredictability Our rivals is good. don't respect us. Right. It's all stuff that we've heard before, except you read it from a teleprompter, and he looked more presidential. And I, I I'm, would love to get that guy in an intro IR class at Georgetown School of Foreign Service. The right. whole, this whole unpredictability hypothesis. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would also whole like respect and credibility thing. We would have a lot of fun in intro IR together. <laughs> I would also <laughs> like to point out about um, the whole uh, thing about Trump looking more presidential that we've defined with him looking presidential. The bar is so low. You know, right. if, if he doesn't hurl a lion head or a crooked or a, a Hillary. Disgusting epithet. Right. If, of if some he doesn't kind. threaten to bomb the shit out of somebody, right. or um, you know, or uh, you know, use a, 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 a turn of phrase that we would have regarded as simply unacceptable in civilized mm -hmm. political company a week ago or a year ago, we say how much more presidential he looked. Yeah. yeah. Good point, Ben. Low yeah. bar. Yeah, I think that's kind of going to be some of the reaction of the speech. Uh, okay, let's move on to object lessons. Um, who would like to go first with class? Okay, I will go first because I'm very excited about mine. Okay. So my object lesson is a supplemental notice of intent to use Woo! foreign intelligence surveillance information <laughs> against one Najibulazazi. Okay. So Najibulazazi is um, the attempted New York subway bomber. Uh -huh. um, this is a case from back in uh, in 2009. It was prosecuted in 2010. Um, so this is uh, Charlie Savage uh, dug this up. Um, Noting that Najibullah Zazi got um, his 702 notice, right? So anytime the government, he, he's long been convicted, you know, been in supermax for years now, um, but belated, um, the government submitted its notice of intent to use um, information derived under FISA pursuant to, to that statute. Um, so this is, um, it's one very interesting because we're starting to see more notifications of, um, of 702 information being used in criminal cases, which will be exciting to see um, as the constitutionality of uh, 
<clears throat> those cases play out. But I am personally really excited about this because when I was a 1L in law school, I was an intern um, in the Eastern District of New York with one Allen, who um, is now with the Department of Justice. I will redact his last name. And we were there during the prosecution of Najibul Azazi. Um, and so got to see this prosecution take place um, really up, sort of up close and personal. Um, and I distinctly remember being asked to leave, um, to leave rooms so that there could be conversations about the sources of information that we were not cleared, um, we did not have sufficient clearances to have. Um, so this is sort of the beginning of kind of my um, my fascination with because um, they kicked you out of the room. I was like, I want to know what's in that room. No, but just sort of this is an introduction into sort of um, into the laws um, and sort of the legal process around terrorism. Um, then whenever I went to NSA and got to sort of see up close and personal um, how this information is collected, how it's used, how it's shared, um, I had a lot of light bulb moments about sort of. Um, information that I've seen, I'd seen derived, how it got derived, how that process works. And now that I'm back out of the government, um, and I now have Najibul Azazi's 702 notification, I just really feel like things have sort of come Aww. beautifully full circle, Aww. and I can now comment on it, and I just, it, it pretty, was just a nice moment. It's really spectacular, but I have a question. Mass surveillance <laughs> makes you nostalgic. What does it mean <laughs> to file a notice of intent to use yeah, information in well, a case that is no longer pending. <laughs> um, does uh -huh. that mean retroactively we notice we give you notice that we once had intent. To uh -huh. use. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, whether or not this notice is of um, of any use to him at this point, uh, I actually do not. So um, I do not know the specific sort of rules of the timing of notification, um, but. Maybe we are about to find out. But what are they going to use it for at yeah, this like point? What's the practical implication? I don't know. I think it's just about complying with the statute. Yeah, they, so they, they must have to issue a notice. So they issued a notice. Maybe they intended but they to did use this, it. Right? I mean, they did. Well, so they must not. I, I mean, I would presume. I, I don't know anything sort of about the specifics because I wasn't, uh, you know, cleared for the information at the time. But maybe they didn't use the information at trial or I, whatever it was. This notice did not come until you know what? well right. after the fact. You. Oh, maybe that's what it is that he pled. But still, if they're giving a notice of intent to use now, it implies that there's some use for the information now. In this case. I think the use of the information is just allowing the government to comply with the statute. I don't think they have a choice, right? It was just that they must have issued the notice and then it got held up in you know, whatever, FOIA land. I don't know oh, if they I don't know if they gave it to him oh, or it was you, just declassified. Oh, I don't oh, know the, oh, the so background you, on it. What's the date on the notification? So the date on the notification is uh, September 29th, 2009, which predates the trial. Ah, okay, okay. So I thought you meant they had issued, they had given him now this notification. Yeah. No, it's just it's only now become public. Is yeah, although I, I'll have to, I'll, all right, I'm, I'm going to have to, I'll write this up for a lawfare. I'll have to sort of see the timing. I think that he did not, he himself did not receive the notification until later. But um, the important thing is that it has emerged into the public space, and I'm, um, Najibul Azazi, um, thank you for inspiring me to undertake Memories. this line of work. Um, Aww. Hope you're loving a Supermax. <laughs> there you go. Um, Excellent. Oh, Tamara, what is your object? Well, what, my what, object... What nostalgia are you feeling today? No nostalgia. In fact, this is a forward-looking kind oh, of object. Oh, so this is my next read. Nice. A book by Patricia Waitzman called Dangerous Alliances, Proponents of Peace, Weapons of War. It's not a new book. It came out uh, about a decade ago, actually. Oh, wow. But it's my next read because I'm working. I've 
am embarking now on a new research project um, for what my next book will be, uh, which is a book about America's relationships with autocratic allies. Um, that is strategic partners or security partners who have dictators, dictators uh, running the country. Can you call some of my best friends or dictators? Maybe. Yeah. That's a good... That, that's at least gonna, you, that, That'll when at least be a good working title. Yeah, when, when it yeah. comes time for title, I will come back to the podcast for recommendations. <laughs> but this is a book basically about, you know, we think of alliances are, as things that are formed for defensive purposes, right? Groups of countries banding together to face threats jointly because they're stronger together than they would be apart. And actually, this is a book about how governments use alliances to constrain their alliance partners, that actually they see threats within alliances and they're using them to tie other countries down like Gulliver. So really, really interesting kind of counterintuitive take on alliance questions. This is a moment where we, we're facing a lot of questions, including from Donald Trump, about the worthiness of America's alliance relationships Always thought-provoking, yes. that Donald and Trump. Yes, so I'm excited for my next read, Dangerous Alliances. All right. Ben. So my, I also have a, a FISA 702-related oh, uh, object hey. lesson. And like... Uh, <clears throat> Cyber bombs, indeed. Yeah, so my uh, object lesson is the newest paper in the Hoover uh, uh, Lawfare Aegis paper series, which is by uh, Susan's former boss, um, uh, former deputy uh, director of NSA, Chris Inglis, and his co-author, Jeff Kosif, or Kosif. Uh, and it is a, the, the best full-throated defense of FISA 702 I have read. Um, and it is entitled, In Defense of FAA Section 702, an it's examination. A good, title. It's good. It's very. It's very English. It's to the point. An examination of its justification, operational employment, and legal underpinnings. And the really interesting thing about this paper is it's written as a forward-looking argument that the proper approach, as this statute comes up for reauthorization uh, in 2017, is what Mitch McConnell would call a clean reauth. That is not like a USA Freedom Act, you know, rein it in, mend it, but don't end it. But just actually this program works and is legal and already takes account in a thousand ways of privacy interests. And most of what you've read about it from in criticism is factually in error. Uh, and uh, I think uh, Chris and Jeff make a uh, very interesting, strong case for a... Uh, for not uh, not really changing a word of, of 702. The mere fact that they're making the case is also incredibly interesting. It will be sort of the engagement of government officials and former government officials on these issues and sort of how prepared they are to defend this program. It will be very interesting to watch over the next sort of... So Shane is rubbing his hands together. It's yeah. going to be a good one. So. And, and He's I, not the Patriot Act, that was fierce. And I will, I will say also that this paper series, the first three or four of which are now out, are all, you know, the first three or four are all on aspects of 702 and cover a range of... Yeah you know, quite radical reform to, in this case, no reform to, in one case of a paper that's forthcoming, get rid of the whole thing. Um, so we're trying, we're trying to cover with the paper series, you know, sort of a, a, a range of, of approaches to 
the problem of 702 and um, open-minded inquiry. How novel! Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is in the in the department of objects that go thunk when you drop them on a desk, nice. but it's very worth reading. Well, let's let's hope that uh, you know members of Congress read them. That would be nice. Or yeah. at least have them summarized. Yeah, for, for them. them by interns. Maybe interns who <laughs> will one day go on to have all the security clearances. Yes. Thank you. All right, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our past shows in our archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Please make sure to follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. We love hearing from you. Uh, thank you, by the way, for some of your suggestions on topics to discuss on the show. We will try and get to a couple of those next week as well. Sometimes the suggestions have been things that I'm like, I don't think we know anything about them. <laughs> you guys, send us softballs. Oh, I forgot to Someone tell you. Someone did want to know about the Brexit, and I'm like, I don't know. I met the I dog know. guy, guys. Oh, you met the dog guy? Wow. I met the Texas dog guy. Hi. I don't remember your name, but hi to you and hi to your dog. Yeah. I met him in Austin. Real thing. Yeah. Dog no, loves no. the show. The dog loves the show, and I just, I just want... Uh, to emphasize that now to listeners who didn't believe me when I said it, Susan is credible. There really is a guy whose dog listens so to the show. Send us awesome. your dogs and your easy questions. Yes, your dogs and your easy questions, preferably about terrorist bombs, cyber bombs, Section 702, you know, whatever. And puppies. And puppies. Uh, but thank you very much for those. Our show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by the Cyber Beach Boys. <laughs> Beach Bombs. Barbara bomb, bomb, bomb. I yes. got it. I got it. It was I a read. It was clean and easy. Oh, it was wholesome. I thought you were going to get Najib Bulazazi into it. Oh, well, I came up not, with this. Najib Bulazazi and the Cyber Beach Boys. Okay, sure. Yeah, why okay. not? He could be the front man. Yeah, okay. yeah definitely. Right. In the 702s. <laughs> That's good. That. See, all right, we're working through it. We're yeah, working we're gonna, through it. We got go. a lot of bands. We're taking it on the road, you guys. <laughs> all right. Well, on behalf of my friends Ben Wittis, Tamara Kaufman Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.